0: Have you ever been in a situation that left you saying something like this to yourself? I have no idea. <laughs> Makes me think of the story of the man who, um, who was on a flight, heading overseas, long flight, and he, was, he was seated on the flight, and all of a sudden, Albert Einstein walked onto the plane. And Einstein walked up to his aisle and sat right next to this man. Flight took off and Einstein leaned over. He said, you know, it's going to be a long flight. Why don't we play a little game to pass the time? Here's the rules of the game. I will, I will ask you a question. If you cannot answer the question, you give me five bucks. He said, and then you will ask me a question. And if I can't answer it, I'll give you $500. The man thought to himself, heck, sounds like a heck of a deal to me. Let's play it. So Einstein went first. He leaned over to the man and said, okay, what is the distance between the earth and the sun? The man thought, I have absolutely no idea. So he reached his pocket and gave Einstein five bucks. Now it was the man's turn. He looked at Einstein And he said, what goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four? Einstein, this scientific genius, is just racking his brain. And he said, I have no idea. So Einstein pulled out his wallet and gave the man $500. Frustrated at this point because the story has backfired on Albert Einstein. So he said to the man, you know, it's my turn, but before I go, I must know. What goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four? The man looked at Einstein, reached in his pocket, and gave him $5. (laughs) Why tell that story? Well, this morning, we are entering back into the book of Isaiah. We're beginning in chapter chapter 40. rather. Isaiah has been looking down the corridors of eternity future. And he's been prophesying about the coming exile for God's people. He warns them that in about 100 years, they will suffer in captivity under the mighty Babylonians. And as a result, they will feel defeated, they'll feel despair, and they will at times have no idea how they're going to make it. And in Isaiah chapter 44, our text this morning, Isaiah wants to comfort them. He wants to comfort them. He wants them to be able to persevere through their suffering and be well-equipped to glorify him through their suffering. So to do this, Isaiah gives them three certainties, three certainties that will sustain them, help them, and ultimately save them. Maybe you find yourself here this morning in a situation, going through a set of circumstances that leave you thinking to yourself, I have no idea how I'm gonna make it. And if you are, friend, Isaiah 44 is custom-fitted for you. So let's begin by looking at Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse one. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. What's happening here? Isaiah begins by calling on all of God's chosen people to listen up. And he does so by reminding them that he is the one who, look at verse two, has formed them and will therefore help them. How will he help them? Verse three. For I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. It shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on, on the his hand the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And it is here that we discover the first certainty Isaiah gives God's people, which is this. A promise to believe. A promise to believe. God helps his people suffering in exile, not by removing them from it, at least right away, but by giving them a promise he has given to them once before. If you remember in Genesis 17, God promised to Abraham that he would, quote, be the father of a multitude of nations. That there would one day be a multitude of people that outnumber the stars, that will enter into covenant with God and he will bless them and usher them into a land where they will live in peace forever. It's a promise. And yet, what is confusing is that what God's people are currently experiencing isn't joy and blessing, but slavery and despair. God had promised to build his kingdom, but as the people look at the world around them, it seems like God told a big, fat lie. One commentator remarks, quote, how remote the fulfillment of that promise must have seemed to the small, humiliated remnant in Babylon. it has got it right. So what does God do? God, God takes the Abrahamic covenant and fleshes it out a little bit more. Look at verse three. He says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my promise. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In other words, God himself, God himself will one day come to his people. And what will happen? Look at verse four. They shall spring up among the grass like willows my flowing streams. What's Isaiah saying? He's saying that like grass planted by streams of water, there will be growth and new life popping up all over the place. In what way? Verse five. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. This means that the new life and growth God has promised will come in the form of a multitude of people turning from their sin and publicly professing they belong to God. And the reason God gives his people this promise through Isaiah is for this reason, because everything happening to them and around them will tempt them to not believe it. And brothers and sisters, not much has changed. Every single day, we are, all of us, are tempted to believe that God's kingdom is not advancing, not growing, and not coming. All of us. If you don't believe me, turn on the news. A friend of mine recently asked, Brad, what news channel do you watch? I said, does ESPN count? Does ESPN (laughs) count? but even there on ESPN you will find countless stories of brokenness, countless reminders that it seems as though God has forgotten us, that he's not active and at work. But but guys, let's, let's be honest, it's not just the news or media that causes us to believe God's kingdom isn't advancing, it's our own hearts. Oftentimes when we face or hear about difficulty or something challenging, it is so easy for many of us to become so discouraged and to think things like, God isn't working. Nothing's gonna change. The world's spinning out of control. But brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning that God is building his kingdom today in ways we can't even see yet. Right now, right now, all over the world, everywhere, God is fulfilling his promise in Isaiah 44 by taking notorious sinners and making them notorious believers. And if you don't believe me, look in the mirror. You are a testimony to his grace, to him advancing his kingdom. See, here's the thing. He is doing that because he is in absolute control of everything. Let me say that again because some of y'all have been in church for a while. You're like, yeah, he's been in control, move on with it. Listen, he is in absolute control over everything. Absolutely everything. Listen, God is not up in heaven when a new crisis hits and he's like, all right, heavenly host, I'm gonna send out a calendar invite. We gotta get her on a whiteboard, we gotta figure out what we're gonna do here because this has totally messed up my plan. No, no, God God is not up in heaven wringing his hands trying to figure out what to do today. Everything is going exactly his way. Everything, everything is going according to plan. And listen, he's he's not only in control over what is happening. He's also in control of what will happen. Look at verse six. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who's like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, therefore, nor be afraid, for have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Here's the point. No matter how bad our world gets, no matter what difficulty you find yourself in today, Isaiah says there is one thing that is certain. God is building his kingdom. And nothing will derail him. He's doing it right now. And our job is not to figure out how. It's to believe that he is. God's people in exile, much like us today, need this reminder, don't we? Not only because of what was happening around them, but because of what was happening within them. Look at verse nine. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Isaiah comforts God's people by giving them three certainties. First, a promise to believe. And now here we discover, secondly, a warning to heed. A warning to heed. Isaiah begins to warn God's people about the dangers of idolatry of worshiping anything or anyone other than God. To do this, he makes three observations about idols, three things that Isaiah has observed about the practice of idolatry that he wants God's people to be informed about. The first is this, idolatry is pointless. Look at verse 10. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? In In the Hebrew language, It actually can be translated to say, who fashions a God or cast an idol? That makes no sense. Verse 11. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Isaiah says, in a nutshell, that idolatry always gives birth to twins emptiness and shame. To worship something or someone other than God, Isaiah says, is a one-way ticket to gaining nothing and yet losing everything. But not only is idolatry pointless, secondly, he says it's crazy. Look at verse 12. Since the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water in his faint. Verse 13. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. The idea Isaiah is trying to get across is that idols are made by mere men. Men who, verse 12, become hungry and faint. In other words, there's something outside of a man that a man needs. And the perplexity here is that that man's creating a God that the other men worship, which makes the worship of such things crazy. But Isaiah really wants us to get this point, so he illustrates, he gives us a story. Look at verse 14. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Verse 15. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. This is a simple story. Here's the story. A guy goes out. He plants a tree. Eventually, he cuts it down. He uses it for fire to make some presumably Texas Roadhouse Rolls, don't know, might be in there. Life's pretty good. And then look at verse 15 again. Also, he makes it a God and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. To the point, look down to verse 17. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Do you see the insanity here? That This guy takes a tree and starts singing Chris Tomlin songs to it. <laughs> Isaiah's point, here's the point, that idolatry, all idolatry, no matter the object or person being worshiped, is as crazy as praying to a tree. It's crazy. He says, idolatry is pointless, it's crazy, and then thirdly, it's blinding. Look at verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also break Baked bread on its coals. I roast in meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Verse 20. He feeds on ashes. That is a great definition of all idolatry. Trying to find nourishment from something that will inevitably take your life. He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The Apostle Paul picks up on this in the New Testament in Romans chapter one, if you remember. When he describes that those who commit idolatry as claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, what makes idolatry so dangerous is the more you worship it, the more you are led astray until, as Isaiah says, you cannot deliver yourself. So so, so here's the question, that's pretty sobering. Here's the question you ought to be asking yourself. And I ought to be asking myself, if idolatry is so blinding and so bad, how do I know if I'm doing it? How do I know? Well, in his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer provides an answer to that very question when he writes the following. This is an incredible text, sort of this. He says, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. What a great definition. That if, if we are given these temporary joys, if our heart is so swept up in who God is and his person, that when these things are taken away, they won't be necessary to our happiness. He goes on, or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one, all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, forever. In other words, what Tozer is saying is if you want to know what you worship, ask yourself this question. If I lost blank, fill it in, would I lose my joy? If I lost blank, would I lose my joy? This morning, can you say with the psalmist, in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven beside you? And there's nothing I desire beside you. Can you say that? I confess, we're, I'm sitting over here singing that, Lord, I love you more than anything. That's hard for me to sing that. Because I'm sitting there thinking, oh, Lord, is that true of me? Do I, do I actually love you more than Anything? Or is your joy so intertwined with something on earth that if you were to lose it, life would be drudgery? And yeah, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, this week we have all tried to tie our joy to eroding anchors. A job A relationship, a child, a home, a car, a number on a bank account, popularity, physical abilities, accomplishments, the list goes on and on and on. And at the end of the day, guys, we are not much different from the Israelites, are we? Our hearts naturally drift to making anything and anyone other than God necessary to a life of joy. Which is why Isaiah says in verse 21, Remember, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Isaiah comforts God's people with three certainties. First, a promise to believe. Secondly, a warning to heed. And here we find, thirdly and finally, and perhaps most importantly, The third certainty, which is this, a truth to remember. God so desires the hearts of his people, he so desires their hearts, that on the heels of warning them about idolatry, a sin in which they have all been and will all at some point be guilty of, he encourages them by reminding them of his love for them. Look at verse 21 again. He says, remember these things. What things? What he just told them about his promises and idols. Why? Oh, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. You are mine. I've I've formed you. You are my servant. Oh, Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. And not only has he not forgotten them, But he is also, verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God tells his people that even though their sins against him are many, they're many, he has blotted them out to the point it's as if their transgressions are like clouds and their sins are like mist. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, clouds and mist were typically used to describe something that is easily and completely taken away. Many examples of this. One, for example, is in Hosea chapter six, where God uses clouds and mist to describe Israel's waning love towards him. Here's what he says. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Here it comes. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the mist that goes early away. The idea here is that God has so forgiven his people of their sins, it's as if they never even happened. God is promising that according to what he will later say in Isaiah 53, that he will one day send a Messiah who will take the penalty of the sins of his people forever. The apostle Peter builds on this in 1 Peter 2 when he says that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy because he, verse 24, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Which means that if you place your faith in Jesus, believing that he alone can forgive you of your sin and give you life, what was true of God's people then will be true of you now. Which, which makes, y'all, Isaiah 44, verse 22, not just theoretical. You don't study Isaiah 44, verse 22. You worship God because of it. This is deeply personal. Listen, if you're following Jesus, this verse is for you right now. Today, this moment, this morning, listen to these words. This this has your name all over it if you're in Jesus. God probably brought you here for a thousand reasons but I know one of them is to hear this. These words to you, listen afresh, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like a mist. Consider the gravity of such a statement. All of your sin against God, all of it, Covered, wiped away, annulled, forgiven. and Thomas Goodwin put it this way. In the gospel, we see a forgiveness of such breadth that it is able to cover the sins of millions of worlds. A forgiveness that reaches to eternity such that no sin, no amount of sin against it can wear it out. And guys, we've tried to wear it out this week, haven't we? More ways that we're aware of. And yet the promise of the gospel, what Isaiah is reminding God's people about, is that because of His grace, they are completely and eternally forgiven. And he has to remind them because they probably forgot it. Thank you, my brother G. I love you. Let me help you out, brothers and sisters. When, when Jesus died on the cross, it was raised from the dead. It was as if he hit select all on all of your sins, past, present, and future, and put his finger on the delete button forever for you and me. And as a result, now, what are we to do? when we fall back into sin, when we worship or find things that are more necessary to our happiness and joy than God, what do we do? Verse 21, this is God's invitation to all of us this morning. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Three words, return, come back. To who? To me. So here's the question, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Well, and four years ago, almost two, I think February, Billy Graham passed away. Hard to believe it's been four years. And remember four years ago, the funeral was being live-streamed, so I decided I'm I'm gonna watch this. Um, And along with thousands of other people, I got to hear the story of... Billy Graham through the lives of so many people that he had touched and impacted. But one story stuck out to me above all the others, and it was a story that his daughter Ruth told. Here's what she said. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. Not long after, I met a handsome man, and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought they can't tell me what to do. I know what's best for my life. My mother and father called me and said, honey, why don't you just slow down and wait to really get to know this man? I thought to myself, they've never been single parents. They've never been divorced. What do they know? So being stubborn and willful, I married him. And within 24 hours, I knew I had made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I knew I had to talk to my mother and father. It was a two day drive and on the drive, questions swirled in my mind. What was I going to say to daddy? What was I going to say to mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What would they say to me? I told you not to do it. We're tired of fooling with you. You've embarrassed us. And let me tell you, no girl wants to embarrass her father, and you really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. (laughs) So as I drove my car around the mountain where my parents live, I rounded the last bend, and as I turned around the corner into the driveway, I saw my father standing there, waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he ran up to me, wrapped his arms around me, smiled, and said, welcome home. There was no shame, no condemnation, no lecture, just unconditional love. Then she said this, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was really like that day. Are you far from God today? Has your heart drifted from him this week? Maybe for a thousand different reasons, but your heart, you just know it this morning, your heart is, it's far from God. If so, he has three words for you. Return to me. Regardless of how broken and hopeless you feel right now this morning, his promise is that when you return to him, he will not meet you with a, you again, but with a welcome home. Welcome home. This is the heart of our God. Which should cause each of us to join with Isaiah in saying, verse 23, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Why? Why? Why why will he be glorified? Because he's given his people a promise to believe that he's building his kingdom. That he's given them a warning to heed that sin will always lead to suffering and Jesus has conquered it and therefore so can we. But most of all, praise God, he has given us a truth to remember that when we turn to him, All of our sins are forgiven. And when our hearts drift because of Jesus, he will always stand waiting for us when we return, saying, welcome home. Let's pray. Father, we are so forgetful, so forgetful. Our hearts so tend to remember the things we should forget and forget what we should remember. So this morning, would you you help our hearts to really grasp these truths? Thank you that for those of us who are in Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven. So hard to grasp, but we worship you because of it. So would you help us now, even as we sing this song, to have hearts filled with joy and gratitude because there is no God like you. We want to give you thanks in Jesus' name.